If you have your Bible, uh, I invite you to open to the book of Psalms, Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And so you want to leave that open there on, on your lap. We are in week two of a new series that's uh, probably going to last about two more weeks. And this is a, a little bit different for us, and I'll explain why. Uh, but this series is um, a foundational series for us as a community. And because this is a series about the Word of God, about the very Bible that you're opening and that you're flipping those pages to. Uh, because week after week, and in fact, we just finished a series on the book of Acts. It was 50 some odd weeks, took, took us quite a while to preach through the book of Acts, and that's normally what we do here. And so typically what I do is I get up here and I say something like, we're going through the book of Acts here at the Park Church. This is what we do. We preach through books of the Bible. And when I say that, um, there is a pretty big assumption that I make about us or about the hearers. And there's a pretty big assumption that we make when we teach the way that we do. And the assumption is this, is that you and I, we trust the words of the Bible. We trust the scriptures that Sam unpacked last week as the authority, Right? Why do we invest 50 plus weeks in preaching through 28 chapters of a book or in Matthew when we preach through Matthew two and a half years preaching through the gospel of Matthew? The reason we do that and teach that way is because we believe that the written word of God is literally the word of God. That it is what it says it is, that it's alive and it's active, that it is, it is moving, that it's God's revelation of, of himself and his story to all mankind. Those are big words. Some of you who've went through covenant partnership, there's 20 people going through covenant partnership right now down at TPC Commons. The first thing that our elders are walking them through, that's our membership class, the first line on the partnership covenant one to another is this, that we trust that the Bible is the final arbiter on all issues. Big statement, right? Yeah, pretty big, pretty big statement. And the reason we believe that it's the final arbiter on all all issues, not just some issues, right? Not just 97.8% of issues, but on all issues, is because it's God's word. It is God's revelation to us. Well, we wanted to spend a little time talking about God's word. Not just make those assumptions, not just go, well, you believe this, right? Like, we, we believe this is a community and all just nod our heads. But set firm that foundation, Set firm the foundation that we are a community of people under the word. And Sam last week talked a lot about authority. Authority, right? And, and listen, he, he said we all have issues with authority. We don't all have issues with authority, right? Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, we do. Right, and, and, and listen, this has been the enemy's scheme since day one. The first words out of Satan's mouth, Genesis chapter 3, to Adam and Eve, our first parents, right? In the Garden of Eden, in perfection, what did God tell them? Listen, everything is yours. You can enjoy everything except this one thing. And in Satan, the first words out of his mouth are what? Did God really say? Did God say? 
And so listen, this idea or this questioning of God really speaking is not a modern thing. It's not a modern phenomenon. It's one that the enemy has crafted and been crafting since day one. The enemy has never stopped attacking the word of God. Right? Before anything was ever in print, right? It was, did God really say? You see, the serpent appeared and the authority of God's word was his first target and continues to be today. Today on the church calendar is Pentecost Sunday, a day where we celebrate, um, we just concluded Acts, like I've said, right? The day that the Holy Spirit falls and the church is formed, right? On that day, Acts chapter 2, Peter, right? Disciple Peter, he gets up and he preaches the first sermon on Pentecost Sunday. And if you look at that sermon in Acts chapter 2, I believe it starts in, in verse 40 or somewhere around that. Peter's entire sermon, his entire sermon is what? Scripture. The Word of God. Joel. King David. Jesus. Over and over. Why? On Pentecost Sunday, which I love. First of all, I had Pastor point this out this week. Pentecost Sunday, Peter, the one who not, not so many days before this uh, was just denying Jesus, going, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus, now is preaching the first sermon with the church gathered. I just love it. Like, that is the heart of our God. But his sermon on that first Pentecost Sunday is the word of God. Why? Because it's our foundation. It's our authority. It's that which we submit to. And Sam was right, and the word of God is right. We are terrible authorities. We all rebel authority. We all rail against it. That's why we have to have an authority outside of ourselves. Outside of number one. But I know my heart, and I think I know yours, is revealed to the word of God. There is always this tension. There's always this battle. The one that the enemy has crafted since day one. And hear me, it has taken um, shape differently throughout the ages. And at the Middle Ages, it took the form of an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. Is it really sufficient to communicate God and to disclose God accurately to us? The clarity of Scripture. Is it really true? And Sam said, we'll, we'll get to facts. And what he meant by we'll get to facts is he wouldn't actually get to facts and he wanted to toss facts to me. Um, so I want to talk about some facts. I want to talk about some of those things that, that, that do stir our hearts, that, that, that have been unpacked and laid out as we examine this word of God, as we make massive assumptions about it and statements about it. But I want to say something about facts or reason or logic. Okay? And uh, Jim, if you have that with the two, the two uh, chasms or the one chasm graphic there not that one the other one don't don't reveal my don't look at that real quick right the one with the two two slides there this one so on one side there's reason and logic there are things that i'm going to state they are they are just facts they're historical they're backed up you can prove them on the other side you have belief and for some of you hear me for some of you 
you're trying to intellectually figure out, okay, is God who he says he is? Is this, can the scriptures, can they be trusted? Are they true? Right? I hear about contradictions. I hear about all these things. And, and I'm not going to necessarily go through a bunch of the contradictions. Hear me, the contradictions or the things, maybe you have specific questions about the word of God. What about this wording or that wording about this translation? I can promise you um, there have been a lot of really smart uh, biblical critics and also Christian biblical critics who have unpacked those things. And I'm not shying away from those things. And I want you to, I invite those questions to us. Um, I'm just not going to unpack those. What I'm going to unpack is um, the historical proof, the evidences we have that what we hold here, the canon of scripture, the 66 books, are what they say they are. But it's over here in reason and logic. Reason and logic will not get you alone to belief. It won't. It, will, it never will. All it can do is close this middle part for us. That chasm, that jump, all reason and logic can do is close or narrow that gap. So wherever you find yourself, right? Maybe you, you came in here, and I'm so glad that you're here, and you are an agnostic or an atheist, right? Maybe you're from a Mormon tradition or something else. You go through this process. We all take this jump over to wherever you believe, right? Atheism, Mormonism, whatever it is. Islam, this reason and this logic should be narrowing. What I have found, if you will honestly and humbly look at religious traditions, even at atheism, you will see that that gap or that chasm between belief and reason and logic is actually very, very wide. And so the top part, faith, it's a long jump. And all of those, I would submit before you, is too long of a jump for me to make. But with Christianity, here's what I love about our God. Is that he closes with reason and with logic, with things that we can point to and identify tangibly. He closes this chasm chasm between belief and reason and logic to a very narrow thing. However, it's never shut all the way. Why? Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith, we know from the scriptures, is a gift Given by God. So I will lay out all these facts. I will share some of these facts with you. But it will not be enough to convince you. It will not convince you. The spirit of God quickening your mind. Quickening your heart. Giving you faith. Is what will make you jump. To trusting and believing in Christ. Jesus himself. Hear me. Jesus himself performed miracle after miracle. In front of crowds. And massive amounts of people. Yet on the cross. How many people actually followed him? A handful. And most of them, even in that last moment, denied him. Miracles don't save. Logic and reason don't save. Jesus alone saves. And faith given to us, many of you who God has given you that gift of faith. And so this sermon really, um, yes, if, if, if you're a skeptic and you're here, I invite you into that, into this space. But really it's for those of you who have just grown complacent. Complacent to the word of God. Complacent to what the scriptures really are to this church and to our life as believers. And I hope to, I hope to kind of fan that flame. And students, this, much of this might sound familiar because that's what you walked through on Wednesday night, in fact, as well. And I'm encouraged by the cohesiveness. But um, he, let me lay out some of these, these facts that Sam obligated me to. Um, just kidding. He's not here, so I can give him a really hard time. 
As Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's letter to humanity unfolding himself and his plan of redemption over 66 books written by 40 divinely inspired writers over a span of 1,500 years in a geography of about 2,500 miles in distances. 40 authors, 1,500 years, 2,500 miles of distance between them. Writers like kings and fishermen. We believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired by God, authoritative for all life, without error or omission, infallible in all its composition. And one of the reasons we believe and have the confidence to say that is because of its supernatural unity. Think about 40 different authors writing over 66 books, over 1,500 years. You'd think somewhere it's going to become disjointed. Somewhere there's going to be this like tangent. I want to show you a graphic, a graphic we've used before, but I think it visually paints this picture of unity as well as anything I've seen. And so give the one with the, it looks like a, yeah, that one. So what we have here on the uh, the bottom are all of the chapters and verses in the word of God. And what we have throughout all of the scriptures, okay? In each one of these lines are all of the cross references from those verses to other places in the scriptures. You see any lines running off? You see any like, whoa, whoa, that one went way out there, right? No, what is it? It is unity. It is this arcing from the beginning to the end that there's one story being told from Genesis to Revelation. And not only is there one story being told that is connected throughout all of these different parts, but there's actually what? One storyteller. As Sam said last week, there is one who's holding the pen, who inspired, yes, 40 different writers, but there is one who, it would seem, superintended that writing. That each of these men were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write and construct over 40 authors, 1,500 years, one story. Look at that. Like, that's this word that you hold that is on your lap. And it's not just its, its unity of parts, but it's its purity in its teaching. And it's powerful to transform. Okay, Kyle, that, that's great. But, but what, about, what about the originals? What about the manuscripts that we don't have? We don't have any originals. How do we know this is really what God intended for us to say? Well, as one biblical scholar, Dan Wallace, puts it, you're right, we don't have the originals. But we have what he calls an embarrassment of riches of evidence for the reliability of the Bible. Right? There are other historical documents. Now give me the, the other visual. That, yeah, that one. On the years and the amount of manuscripts and the writings that we have that attest to the validity of what? The reliability of the scriptures that we hold, right? These are the other historical documents, many of which, most of which, I would say, are not really questioned. 
They're not, they're, they're not really questioned, but you can look at them. And the, the closest one here, right, Homer's Iliad, with, five, with 643, with the New Testament, right, we have 24,000 existing copies. Right, so, so, so this is meant to show you just these little yellow dots. Like, that's the number of existing copies. Look at the big yellow one. That's not just for dramatic effect. Like, that is the amount. It's meant to look overwhelming. Why? Because we have an overwhelming amount of manuscripts. You say, well, Kyle, what about early manuscripts, right? Are these just a bunch of old ones, you know, later written, like, just kind of reproduced really quickly? Even if you looked at some of the earliest manuscripts, it would be laughable if we put it up here. The amount that we have, the things that, that attest to the history and the reliability of the word of God. The predictions that we have in the Bible, particularly about Jesus, right? The Old Testament, right? There are eight specific prophecies about Jesus that, that were fulfilled, that, 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 that are, are not doubted. Do you know the likelihood of those eight prophecies being fulfilled about Jesus from the Old Testament to when he lived? It's one, to the, one in ten to the 17th power. Non-math people, that's a lot, okay? Visual people, here's what it's like. It's like if we took coins and we filled the state of Texas, which is a pretty big state, right? We don't like to admit it's the second biggest, but it's, it's a pretty big state, right? The biggest in the connected U.S., all right? Um, took it and filled the state with two feet of coins. And before that, we had one of you mark it, mark one coin, just kind of flip it from an airplane, let it drop. In fulfilling one of those prophecies, is like telling someone to go in the state of Texas when it's been filled with two feet of coins and say, find that marked one. Now you take that there are over 48. That's one to the times 10 to the 50, 157th power. This is the word of God. These are the things that the Bible lays out that we have to look at. Listen, if we're looking at it honestly, if we're looking at it um, intellectually with logic and reason, so you just, this is not just being made up. There's a cohesion here. There's an accuracy here, scientifically, historically. I was reading something about in 1930, 1930 or 1932, I can't, can't remember exactly. But it's talking about archaeologists, and, and they, were, uh, they uncovered um, where the, the walls uh, of Jericho, how they fell. And these archaeologists, they were blown, uh, just blown away by how the walls fell. Like the, the, the nature in which, how they, they fell. And many of them, not believers, they called others. And they, they, they actually built a form to have them sign saying, no, we're attesting. This is actually what we see. This is actually what we found about these walls. That they, they had fallen outward. Exactly how the scriptures say that they fell. And so they attested. They say, listen, believers, non-believers, we're all saying this. This is what we are attesting to see that historically, from an archaeological standpoint, this is what we find to be true. And we see it. Exactly how this book lays it out. Not saying they all trusted this book. They're just saying that's what actually occurred. And that is what we actually found. However. Today. I think the question still remains. Is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Yes, that is one question. It may be a question some of you wrestle with. But I would say the larger question today. That is looming. Is this. 
is the Bible good? Is what it points to beautiful? Is what it says from this creator God, does it really lead to human flourishing? Is it really good? Psalm 16, what Sam talked about last week. That these these boundary lines, they have fallen for me in pleasant places. Verses 6 and 7. Is it really pleasant? Is it really good? Because some of it I see as suppressive and restrictive or irrelevant. I think that is the question today. That's the question you might be asking. I know that's the question that our culture by and large is asking. And so I want to look. You read Psalm 119. At least if you listened to Sam's assignment last week. You read Psalm 119 all the way through. I want to take you back a hundred chapters to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And unpack the way that this psalmist lays out the word of God. And what it accomplishes when we truly live under the authority of it. And what it accomplishes when we truly see it as authority, when we live under it as authority, is a good and beautiful thing. Because what I would argue is that the scriptures, the story, the one story that God is writing from, from, from creation to fall to redemption to new creation is a good and beautiful story. The best and most beautiful story. The one that if we find ourselves and understand our place in that story, it will lead to flourishing. It will lead to redemption. It will lead to life that we will be able to join Psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 16 and say, yes, these boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I can say the things that God gives through his word are pleasant, are good, are right, are beautiful, are powerful. All those things. But I think, if I'm honest, even as the people of God who would say, yes, the Bible is true. It's all of those things that I just articulated. We've lost the awe of it. We've lost the reality of what it accomplishes when we find ourselves under it. And as it says, being washed in it. And so I pray that Psalm 19 and just eight verses of it that we'll go through uh, will accomplish that um, this morning. And so let me just wade us through this. Let us just meditate and steadfastly walk through the word of God. And watch what the psalmist says it accomplishes when we do that. Verse 7. And think. Think about the way you treat the word of God and the way you view it. If it's like this. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. Big words. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is the word of the Lord. What did he just say? Well, I think he said several things. But the first thing he said, look at it in verse 7. That the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That what the word accomplishes as we submit to it, as we are a community under it, it revives us. It literally gives us life. What else has the power to do that? Nothing. Nothing outside of the living God himself. You see, when it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, it means it. That it means that there is nothing lacking in God's disclosed word to us. Scripture has everything for life of faith and godliness. It has not been corrupted and it is without Error in all it teaches. This is where we get those theological terms like infallibility, inerrancy, and sufficiency. Now, here's what's important if we truly trust that it is perfect. It means that we don't add anything to it and we don't take anything away from it. Fair? It's perfect. And God reminds us of this actually in his word. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Right? I think we have it. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. Right? Deuteronomy 12 says the same thing. Revelation 22. Why? Because it's coming back to this point that Psalm 19 is making. It's perfect. So, so my, my wife makes amazing chocolate chip cookies. Amazing. And if you've ever had them, you're like nodding your head. Every once in a while, she gets this crazy idea. Like to add, like, I'm going to substitute cream cheese for it. And I'm like, why? Don't mess with perfect, right? I'm going to substitute this. What are you? You're, I'm going to cut the butter in half. I'm going to double the butter. In t- Don't do anything to them, right? They're just right. Now, that's a very trite example for this. But the point is made. This word. We are not to add anything to it or take anything away from it. Kyle, I would never do that. Churches, pastors, preachers, ministers, bishops, whatever you want to call them, do it all the time. They do it all the time. That is also why anybody, myself included, when I get up here to teach from the word of God, you should have your word of God open as well. I am not inerrant. I am not infallible. I am not sufficient. The word of God is you say, well, yeah, churches, pastors, teachers, preachers, bishops, we shouldn't trust them. You do it as well. You do it as well. You take away from it. You add to it all the time. I, I do it in my own life. And here's why. Back to point number one. We all have a problem with authority. We want to be the authority. I want to be the authority. So I add to it. I take away. I go, no, surely it doesn't say that. Surely it says this. No, I do all these kind of gymnastics. What? To fit to my authority, my preference, my opinion, rather submitting the word before the Lord and submitting the word to itself. 
It's perfect. And I'll tell you, the two primary, two primary ways we add and take away are in the areas of legalism and license. Those are the two primary ways. Saying more than it says and then saying that it says less than it says. Those are the two. And what we have when we do those is we're not sitting under the authority. We're sitting on top of it. And that is a problem because we are bad authorities. And so back to its perfection. Because it is perfect, it revives the soul. This is critical. Right? The word of God makes a spiritually dead person alive. It has that kind of power. It takes the person who is hard-hearted, cold, and warms them up with spiritual affections when they see and understand who God is through his word. Listen, if you want to experience the grace of God in your life, it will primarily and most frequently come through the ministry of the word to your life. It wakes up, it stirs up the complacent, the weary. This is this idea of reviving. To be like, I wish I knew how to grow my faith. I I just desire a, a vibrant faith. Listen, it doesn't happen apart from the ministry of the word. The spirit using the word to inflame what God says about himself. Some of you are seeking and you want to know what is real and what is true. Listen, you must read honestly and humbly and with a hunger. Come to this living word because it will revive you. Some of you are not searching for your faith. Some of you are just searching Going, God, I'm, I'm weary, I'm worn out. God, do you even hear me? Where are you? It will revive you. It will revive you as you meditate on it day and night, as you treat it as the psalmist treats it, not as you treat it just, just looking for some quick tidbits, just looking for some quick inspiration. That's not what we need. We need the whole counsel of the word of God to wash over us, to revive us. Second, this is still in verse 7. It says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What happens when we sit under the word? Yes, it revives us, but it also makes us wise. Second part of of verse 7. The testimony means that the word is testifying about God. Right? It's not a collection of writings from men or of patriarchs thousands of years ago. It is God speaking through men. Second Peter chapter, two, chapter 1 verse 20. With all their baggage and all their personalities and confusion, he was able to speak perfectly through them. His testimony in the word is sure. And it makes us wise. Notice it said that we're simple. Once again, week two, we're saying the same thing. We are a simple people. We lack Wisdom. Can you make yourself wise? No. Just like authority, we need something outside of us to give us true wisdom. Wisdom biblically is this, the knowledge of God and ourselves that comes from outside of us that allows us to fruitfully and faithfully live in this world. That is what wisdom is. You can't conjure that up. I can't conjure that up. I can't go to school enough for that. That is something that God gives to us through his word. When we sit under, when we sit under the word, and I've seen this in people's lives, people who who have journeyed their whole life and been like, man, you've made some really poor decisions. They come to faith. They begin to get in word, in the word. They begin to get in community and they begin to make these wise decisions. Why is that? 
It's because they begin to submit to an authority outside of themselves that says, I will give you wisdom. Regardless of your age, right? You're 14, 22, 80, it doesn't matter. I will give you wisdom, the Lord says. The Lord, in fact, says, if any of you lack wisdom, what should you do for it? Ask. Seek wisdom. Third. Verse 8. People who sit under it, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I love that. The people who are under the authority of the word of God. It's not just reviving our soul. It's not just giving us wisdom, but there is a joy that comes in it. There's a joy that comes from, from the word of God. The word of God is not meant to be purely intellectual or academic. It is meant to be experienced and produce something in us unlike anything that this world can offer. See, see how, what, how, do you, how do you know this to be true? Well, I know it, one, because the word says it is true. But I also know it from my experience of it to be true. That the word of God roots in me a deep-seated joy when everything around me is falling and failing in chaos that cannot be taken by culture or this world. That's what the word does, that it brings a joy. And joy is not worldly happiness. Don't get those two things confused. It's a deep, abiding satisfaction tethered to the God of the Bible, regardless of our situation. And then he goes on to say, the commandments, or excuse me, at the top of eight, the precepts of the Lord are right. Uh, precepts there, just a fancy word for rules. Rules. The laws. Psalm 16, we talked about last week. The boundary lines are pure, they're, they're right. In fact, what he's saying in that verse, I would argue, is this, that the rules or the laws or the commands of God actually bring us joy. Wait a minute, rules giving joy? You want to talk about something countercultural? Wait a minute, no, it's about freedom. It all depends on who the giver of the rule. All depends if you trust the authority. I'm not under anyone's authority. I am ultimately... What? If you have cancer and you are under the care of the world's best oncologist, I don't think you're going, I'm not going to be under your authority. You see, when we know the heart of God, that he is good, that he is gracious, that, 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 that what he is leading to and writing in his story, in his new creation, making all things new, we gladly submit to that authority. We gladly know that that's where joy is found. That's where life is found. And in his rules, in his precepts, in these boundary lines that he draws, right? We know it'll be pleasant because the authority is good. See, if you have issues with the boundary lines or the precepts of the word of God, it's not that you have issue with the lines. You have issue with the giver or the drawer of those lines. Go far enough in the argument, okay? Verse 8 tells us also that the scripture not only brings joy, but it enlightens our eyes. That the commands and laws of God are not like man's laws. They are perfect and true and for the glory of God and for our good. And his word enlightens us to be able to see the knowledge of who God is and who we are so we can know, so we don't have to go through this life like many of you who are going through this life, just guessing 
guessing at the massive questions in life, hoping that you swing and connect. But there are answers to those questions. There are answers found in the word of God as God lays it out to what's wrong with this place, right? Where are we headed? How do we know the purpose? What am I called to? The word enlightens our eyes to those great realities. Fifth, verse nine. The fear of the Lord is clean, meaning perfect, right, whole, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Did you get that? How long do they go on? How long does the word of God go on? Forever, right? And this isn't the only place that says it. First Peter 1 25, that the word will stand forever, it says. The word endures forever, right? We've sang old songs about the word enduring forever. This is what God says, that it stays with us. It is not temporary. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. It's not changing. Our culture The world that we live in is always changing. We're in Texas. They tear down new things to put newer things up. Okay, right? It blows me away being here. Change around us. We age. We change years. Our kids change change schools. They change grades. The word of God is consistent always. It stays the same. So, So what? Well, that gives us confidence. At least as we approach the scriptures, we know that God is not like us. He's not telling a story that is, that is like, okay, we need to edit here. We need a revision here. No, he has written the story. He's contained it in the book. He's continuing to write his story through us of that unchanging story of his love and his redemption for humanity. You see, there's a sense of security that I can trust the word of God because it speaks the same truth in different cultures and different ages to every person. Some of my favorite preachers to listen to are ones that have many years passed on. But it's amazing listening to their teaching. Outside of a few of their odd examples and their like language, it could be for today. That's why this book is 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 so relevant for all of us in all ages. John Stott, um, a great teacher and scholar, said this. He says, The modern world detests authority, which we've proven but worships relevance. Our Christian conviction is that the Bible has both authority and relevance and that the secret of both is Jesus Christ. The secret of both authority and relevance is Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Right, it's why we can, and pull up 2 Timothy for me. It's why we can see scriptures um, like this. Do we have it? For the time is coming, When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Leave that up. How many of you say, very relevant? Yeah. It's always been relevant. It's always been relevant because the heart of man has always been consistent. One to wonder, prone to wonder, prone to be its own authority. All of those things, it's consistent. And somebody say, well, what about, like you can get specific in how it's consistent. Yes, but it's always been consistent. It's always been true. Why? Because that's what God's word is. Sufficient. It is true and will always be true. 
You see, culture changes and the world changes. And hear me, when we stand as a people and as a church under the authority of God's word, seeing these things, operating in these things, these, these, these boundary lines, if you will, we will look strange in the best of ways. We'll look strange. We will look different. We will look counter. Um, but my fear is we've not just looked strange or counter. Um, we have looked and been wrongfully offensive. Right where our doctrine is right. Our, our theology is sound. But yet our tone does not match the heart of the tone of our God and particularly our Savior Jesus Christ in the scriptures. Have you felt that? What does the Bible say? That it stands with us and it stands in us and will go before us. In the verses 10 and 11, um, I would just challenge you to look at those. Is that really how you view the word of God? as sweeter than honey, as better than any riches. And my last point is this, for a people who sit under the word of God, it has the power to transform us. Is it revive, transform? They're different here. For whatever reason, in verse seven, he uses the word revive. And then in verses 12 and 13, he talks about transformation. He talks about change and the inability in of ourselves to see our own ways. You see, why is the word of God cherished and more valuable than anything? One, because it's God's word, but two, also because it has the power to change and move us from sinners and offenders and transgressors to sons and daughters. But not just individually, it has the power to change and transform whole societies and communities. God has provided a beautiful, powerful sweetness in the word of God that is to be prized and treasured more than anything you can lay your hands on. That the word of God, when we submit to it as authority, exposes our sin, corrects us, convicts us, shapes us. And verse 12 says, we can't discern that in of ourselves. And the psalmist knows that if he's going to be free from the tyranny of sin and walk in God's way, there's only one way. That's through the power of the Holy Spirit, submitting to the word, being under the word. And then verse 14 should be the desire of every Christian in this room. That the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see that radical reorientation both individually and corporately. When that becomes our desire, when we find ourselves as a people under the word of God in community, begins to take place differently than any sermon inspiration and sermons are biblical any other book inspiration or song inspiration or conference inspiration or, 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 or podcast, it literally transforms us from the inside out. Like I prayed to start even this talk, like we don't need, you and I don't need any more temporal inspiration. We don't have the power to change ourselves. 
There is no growing, no knowing, no strength, no killing sin, no healing your marriage apart from the ministry of the word taking place in your life. And our prayer from day one has been this for us as a community. (laughs) This is where I'll end. Is that we want our Bibles in our hands. And I don't just mean carrying them around, but I mean open. The Holy Spirit in our hearts. Other Christians in your life. And that's what we're going to get into in the next couple weeks. This is not reading the scriptures in a silo. And Jesus on your horizon, ever before your eyes, so that we can live biblical lives for God's glory, for our joy, and for others' good. Is this trustworthy? Absolutely. But is this also good and beautiful and powerful? You bet. Let's pray. Father, it almost seems trite to say thank you for your word. Because I I don't have the words to articulate how grateful I am for your disclosure to us in the written word, in the word made flesh in your son Christ. But Lord, it is with a heart of gratitude and thankfulness from experience that I say thank you, Lord, for your living word. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would continue to steep this church in a depth of your word. Not just a knowing intellectually, but a heart-permeating meditation upon your word that revives us in a weary land, that transforms us individually and corporately, that does give us a strange way of living in a counterfeit world. We would would know the truth and the real thing because of your word. So Holy Spirit, I pray, fan those flames. Shake up the complacent. Wake up those who have just fallen asleep and who have given their authority over to other things and other people. God, that we might once again come to your word, feasting on it, enjoying it, reading it, marinating in it, and watching the joy and the life and the wisdom that it brings to us. Give way. Spring forth. God, I pray as we get into groups this week, whether small or large, And with your word at the center, with Jesus, God, on our horizon, that we would see change in shaping of our affections and our zeal and our idolatry would fade away. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this community who's willing to wrestle through some some deep things to get to the real stuff. I love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.